place it comfortably. So, title of this talk tonight, Taking False Refuge. Um, I suppose in the times we're living at the moment with um, crises occurring, global warming, bushfires, coronavirus, it can have an impact on everyone. It can have an impact of despair sometimes on people um, and stress and anxiety and wondering where things are going. And one of the things that people can do um, when they're in despair is that they then jump to hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's one psychiatrist whose name escapes me, but one psychiatrist said some years ago is that hope is a reaction formation to despair. What he means by that, it's a way of like overcompensating for a depressing kind of feeling. And there are many variations that it can take, like um, um, sort of a naive optimism or positive thinking, whatever it might be. Um, and from a Zen perspective, it, it's a kind of, um, it, it's a false refuge. It's a way of trying to feel comfortable in the midst of something that may be threatening or difficult or painful or, or unpleasant. Now, myself and many other people, including me, use the word hope, you know, in, in everyday life, like hope to see you again, you know, hope you have a good day. But it's said in the sense of um, a sense of care for the other person or in that spirit. But to really believe that hope is going to change anything in itself, it is in itself, this is going to sound critical, but it, it's in a sense that it's a lazy way of taking refuge because it gives you the impression that you're actually doing something positive by hoping, but it doesn't actually make any difference to anything. Mm -hmm. And um, if I use an example um, from being a sailor on my boat, if I'm sailing my boat and there's not much wind, it's not very strong and it's very slow, and sailors talk about doing this, it's almost like you try to will it to go faster by straining your stomach muscles, like... <laughs> but it doesn't make it go any faster. But hoping is kind of like that. It's like hoping it would go faster by, by taking a certain posture in the world but it doesn't make any difference at all. It kind of, it's a way of, when we, when we do it like that, it's, it's a way of feeling good. Um, but as Joko would say, it's kind of like it's, it's avoiding the unpleasantness of life by being in a cocoon. So it made me reflect on um, other kind of um, false refuges that we can often take in life apart from hope. But another one that comes to mind is complaining. You know, and and often we can all do it. And often people have a habit of actually complaining about something but not actually doing anything to change their circumstances. Like someone might complain that the the group that they're in, whatever kind of group it might be, Oh, I don't like it because there's people there who have that view and that view and, it, and it's not the same as my view and da 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 da. Well, if you want to go to a group that supports your views, go to another group. Right? And one of my 
therapist friends actually challenges people in therapy when they keep complaining about things and says, well, why don't you go to another group if you don't like it, you know, that supports, supports you more and where you feel you more belong. And, and often people who are just complaining as a habit have all kind of excuses why they can't go to another group, right? And, and they, they eventually, my, my friend gets them to the point of actually recognising that they'd rather complain, right? Um, actually, they want to complain. And if you complain, you don't have to do anything, but you kind of take a false refuge in the sense that you're challenging something or, you know, saying what you're displeased about. But it doesn't, it doesn't make any difference to your life at all. Mm-hmm. Indecision and confusion is another, another one. Um, psychoanalytic people see, often see when people are chronically confused, it's just a way of not taking action on anything because you're confused, you don't know what to do. And so confusion often comes just by overthinking something over and over again and being indecisive and not taking any action where some action is required. And it often requires, often people are indecisive because they just do not want to let go of something. Sometimes, we've, many times in our lives, we're faced with situations where whatever way you go, you're going to lose something. Mm-hmm. And, um, and if you don't want to lose anything, then you'll just stay in indecision, right? But then life will make decisions for you anyway. But again, to be in that, just stay stuck in that indecisive place, again, is a false refuge. Another one I thought of is, is mindless excitement, um, which is very different to, to deep joy, do you know, and, and, and intimate joy. But just mindlessly doing things to be excited is a way of escaping from the unpleasantness of life. Another one is victimhood. And I had an example of this just before we started sitting, but some of you may know of that, that article I wrote for the ABC. And, um, and some of the comments that came from people who read it, who um, from the content of their, their emails to me, are um, people with, um, I presume, Christian faith, but a belief in God and, and challenge my <coughs> views about God, etc. Um, and uh, someone kept sending me material every second day, do you know, about some view that they have about about God. And so I, the last one this morning, I put, could you please take me off your email list? And so the response I got back, which is an example of victimhood, the response I got back was, I'm deeply hurt to be rejected by a Zen master. <laughs> <laughs> I would have expected more of a Zen master. <laughs> victimhood. Uh, victimhood is kind of taking a position of, of wounded innocence. Uh, like being very thin-skinned. Another term we use in psychotherapy is thin-skinned narcissism. You know, to be just so easily offended by things which you might be disappointed in, um, but it's kind of criticising the behaviour of someone when really you're just disappointed about the outcome. But it's another place, it's a safe place to be, to be in that place of, of wounded innocence. Another one I thought of is intellectualising, 
where we take refuge in ideologies or belief systems, whatever, religions, whatever it might be. And um, including Buddhism, you know, there's a, we, we use the term taking refuge in the three treasures, which is Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, um, as though magically that's just kind of some permanent safe place to be. But really, if you look at the fine print of what it is to be taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha, um, the Buddha's teachings are all about impermanence. Mm -hmm. So I'm off throwing out a koan here. How do you take refuge in impermanence? Mm -hmm. That's his teaching. No, no one could dispute that's the, the fundamental teaching. And you can point to it. Mm -hmm. So how do you take refuge in in impermanence. Uh -huh. Anyone like to respond to the question at all? How do you take refuge in impermanence? Well, I'll tell you anyway. You, you be the impermanence. You be the impermanence. If you, if you live your life really fully understanding and recognising that everything is impermanent, then you take refuge in impermanence mm -hmm. and and you take refuge in the wisdom of insecurity rather than security and you take refuge in everything because everything is interconnected and that to me is, is the true spirit of taking refuge. Mm -hmm. um, but when we take false refuge it's, also, it's always to try and escape some kind of pain some kind of unpleasantness and it's an escape and um, to come back to a, a metaphor that, that Joko used which I really like about life being like a stream you know and we have whirlpools in the stream if you take refuge if you take false refuge in those kind of things it's like you're in a stagnant whirlpool you're just spinning around and around and around and it makes you more separate in the stream, but you embrace the stream, mm -hmm. and that's a different matter. There was this theme was buzzing through my head today. It was actually my my first um, thought when I woke up this morning. What will I talk about tonight? Was to write a write a little story called "Dear Coronavirus." <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I was going to write is that. In many ways, we should have gratitude for the coronavirus being there because it's one of the messengers. It's a messenger, you know, the, the three messengers in Buddhism are sickness, old age and death. Uh -huh. And so the coronavirus is a threat to our, to our well-being and even our, our life, potentially, for some people. So we should all be sensible, you know, about looking after ourselves. But at another level, at an existential level, it's a messenger. Life is brief. Things could change very quickly. Mm -hmm. So, so appreciate this precious moment. We never think it's going to happen to us. Reflect back on, we weren't here at the time, but reflect back of what we know of the, the history of um, this area around here in European settlement. Um, you know, we, as we all know, the, the settlements started in 1788. 
In 1789, there was a mass smallpox pandemic which killed about, I think, about 90% of the Aboriginal population living around the foreshores, the Aura people. Now, those people lived here for tens of thousands of years. Who would have thought, you know, suddenly that 90% of them were going to die? But it did. It happened. And uh, when we when we reflect on this, reflect on the, we don't know what the next moment brings, and everything is impermanent. It's just the way things is. But it doesn't. If you if you become one with it, it's not frightening. It's just the way things are. And if we if we really truly live that, um, then we don't have to take this false refuge in things like hope or intellectualising things at all. Mm-hmm.